Let's pray, and then we will jump into our study. Father, thank you again that we can pray prayers in song like Just a Closer Walk with Thee. We do pray that you would grant that. That is our plea, that we would walk close to you, that as we study your word, your spirit would be giving us power, power to kill sin, power to love you, power to love others. We pray that Christ would dwell in our heart through trusting in your words tonight. Specifically, your words for our church about what baptism is, what the Lord's Supper is, and why these two ordinances are so important for the church to practice faithfully. And so important for every member of the church to understand. So God, as we think about these things, we pray that you would guide our discussion We pray that you'd help me to speak your word faithfully and truthfully and accurately. And if there's anything wrong or needs to be nuanced, we pray that you would help us to identify those things. We pray that the questions asked would further our understanding of of faithful practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray that we would rejoice in these two gifts you've given our church family. And uh, we pray that we would see many baptisms and worship you deeply over the many Lord's Suppers that we're going to observe in the future. So bless our time now, even as we think about taking the Lord's Supper next week together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I've said it in my prayer several times. Uh, What are the two ordinances of the church? Two regular practices, customs, that the church practices ordained by Jesus. Baptism. Baptism and... The Lord's Supper. That's right. Now, I want to ask the question at the beginning, why are these two things so important? The short answer to that is that these two practices mark out visibly the local church. It identifies who is part of the church. That's why these are so important for anyone who wants to understand a biblical practice of what a church is. You need to understand how to practice these two ordinances. One way to describe the problems of the modern evangelical church, gospel-believing church, is that we've forgotten the importance of seeing. What the ordinances do is help us see. On the one hand, you have some churches that are so, or maybe not so, too attraction-focused. So they want to build a big crowd, nothing wrong with that. They want to draw as many people as possible so that the people can hear the gospel. Good thing, right? Hear the gospel. And we we praise God for everyone hearing the gospel. But a desire for people to hear the gospel has resulted in a community that's not worth seeing. In other words, the crowd doesn't portray the biblical picture of what a church is. So praise God for the hearing of the gospel. But it's not just the hearing of the gospel, though that's, that's central. But the church is the display of what the gospel produces. And in these, when you're trying to attract, attract, attract the crowd, and you don't identify who the church is, you don't know what it looks like in a, in a community. Okay? That's one side of the, of the error. The other side, on the other hand, some churches believe that because they preach the word correctly, they've done all that matters. Maybe through legalistic or conformist impulses, their community has lost the vibrancy we see in Scripture. Well, we're preaching the word faithfully, so the vibrancy of a community, the love for one another, the sacrificing for one another... 
um, the, the way that the preaching should affect the community life, it's almost like, well, it doesn't matter as long as we're preaching the gospel, who cares what's happening in the way we interact with each other. And that's the other, I mean, that's, that's the other side of it. So whether you're a big, uh, nothing wrong with big churches, nothing wrong with small churches necessarily. One's not necessarily better than the other. But the point is, we don't only want to preach the gospel, we want to display the gospel in the church. So the partnership between hearing and seeing is critical when we come to the idea of the ordinances, because they mark out visibly the community of the local church. Which is why some people say that the church is the gospel made visible. Or the church is the display of God's glory. Okay, and so that so we want to think about what the ordinances are and, 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 and then why they're important and how should we be practicing them. So let's first think about the word ordin- the ordinances. They refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are they? What is baptism? Anybody want to take a shot at what baptism is? What is baptism? An outward sign of an inward occurrence, right? An inward reality. Okay. Anyone else? There's a microphone there if anyone else wants to try at this. One, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a precursor to our Baptist Faith and Message, says this. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion, that's the word, right? Immersion. It's the immersion of in water of a believer into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem that's what Barbara's talking about, an outward sign, of our faith in the crucified, buried, risen, and risen Savior with its effects in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. That's the statement of faith definition. You could hear echoes of Romans 6, 3, and 4. You see Romans 6, 3, and 4 in front of you, right? Somebody want to read that out loud? Raise your hand so we can get the microphone to you. Okay, right there. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Thank you. So here you see what baptism symbolizes, right? Baptism doesn't save by itself, but it is an emblem, a solemn and beautiful emblem, of our faith that saves by God's grace. It's a picture of our death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ or united to Jesus Christ. This statement of faith also says what the Lord's Supper is. It says, The members of the church, by the sacred use of the bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Okay, so it's a meal or it's the bread use of the bread and wine to commemorate the dying love of Christ, Proceeded by solemn self-examination. So we call it, what are some names we call this thing? There's a few names. Communion is one. I said the other one. We've said the other one. Lord's Supper. Anyone know what Roman Catholics call it? Eucharist, Eucharist right? And all three of those are okay titles. Don't just, you know, eschew it because it's the Roman Catholic. They also call Jesus the Christ. We don't, we don't have any problem with the word Christ. So, Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means give thanks. Remember when Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks? That's, that's why they call it Eucharist. It was the breaking of bread when Christ gave thanks. Communion is from the Latin word communion, which basically which has the idea of sharing in common. 
Okay? Because we are sharing Christ and sharing life with one another. So you see communion, community, the group that shares life. So that's why we call it communion, because as we take the bread and wine, we are sharing the life of Christ together. We are sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ together. That's why we call it communion. And Lord's Supper, because it was the Last Supper that Jesus took on that Thursday night before he died Friday morning. The New Testament also calls it the breaking of bread, right? The breaking of bread. So this has Old Testament connections. What's the Old Testament meal, the big Old Testament meal that they celebrated every year? Passover, right? And the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, was taken at Passover, There is a deliberate connection between the Passover and what did the Passover celebrate? Anyone remember from Exodus 13? The deliverance of the Jews from Egypt and slavery to Egypt, right? Slavery to Egypt and then from death. Yes, from death because the angel of death was was going around killing all the firstborn and it was a Passover of those who had the blood on the doorpost. And so it was a sign of deliverance from death and a deliverance from slavery to outside powers. And, and so that is connected to the Lord's Supper even today. But notice in the New Hampshire Baptist confection, Confession, it says that this Lord's Supper is preceded always by solemn self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight says, let a person examine himself, himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is a sign and a seal of the covenant, of our covenant, of the new covenant with Christ. As signs, they are an outward indication of an inward reality, which is exactly what Barbara was saying. The inward reality of our faith and our union with Christ. And this sign is very powerful. It doesn't look powerful by the world standards. And if you think earthly when you do the Lord's Supper, it's like, what's the big deal? It's a little piece of bread. It's a tiny, tiny cup. You know, what's the significance? What can that do to impact people's lives? Well, it is a very, very powerful sign. To quote the Westminster Assembly of Pastors, they said, There is in every sacrament or every ordinance a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So this sign is very powerful Because it symbolizes the reality of faith. Remember when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2? And he said that you killed Christ. And then they were all convicted and they said, what should we do? And Peter said what? Repent and be baptized. He didn't say repent and believe. You're thinking, Peter, you can't be saved by baptism, right? Baptism doesn't save, Peter. Wrong answer, it's repent and believe. Well, Peter's not saying you can be saved by baptism, but baptism is so tied to faith because it's the sign of faith that you could almost say baptism, and that's a synonym for faith. Um, You'll remember more than I will, Billy Sunday, and um, he used to have these tent revivals where he's preaching the gospel, and people who would come down to the front, do you know that trail they would call it? Anyone remember here? Yeah, hit the sawdust trail. Because, you know, when they would have these tents, you know, they have all this dirt and people would be kicking up dirt. And so they put sawdust in the aisle so that when you were coming down the aisle, you'd actually walk on sawdust to get to the front. And so whether you went to a Billy Sunday uh, revival evangelistic meeting or not, someone might say, when did you get saved? And they might say, well, I hit the sawdust trail in 1949. 
And it wasn't like they were at the Billy Sunday thing. They're, hit the sawdust trail was a synonym of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not saying hitting the sawdust trail is what saves you. But it was so closely tied to repentance and faith that it almost became synonymous. And that's the way baptism functions in the New Testament. Baptism, the act of baptism, does not save, but it is so closely tied to faith that Peter can say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that would not be theologically wrong given what the New Testament says. Okay, So these are seals and signs that are very, very important and powerful. Just like a wedding ring today, right? It might not seem like a big deal, but if your spouse sees you without your wedding ring and you're out and about, they might ask the question, why are you not wearing your wedding ring? Well, it's just a ring. What's the big deal? We're married. Well, the sign of it is very powerful of, you know, it's an expression of commitment. And so, so some will take it very, very seriously. And when you lose your ring, you're not just saying, oh, it's just a piece of metal anyways. There's, why is it so significant? Because of... It's not just because of what it is, but what it symbolizes, right? And you, you see the power there. And so when we get to the Lord's Supper and baptism, we should feel the power of that symbol in a similar way, even more so than a wedding ring, because it's, it's symbolizing our union with Christ. Okay, and so these symbols bring the clearest promises that we are united to Christ by faith in the gospel. So these Westminster pastors who got together, they stated four purposes for the ordinances in Scripture. Are you guys able to follow along there in your notes? Okay. So they stated four four purposes. They represent Christ and His benefits to us. Just as Calvin reminded us, they do that in a uniquely visual and physical way. Okay? Number two, they confirm our interest in Christ. They remind us that Christ has indeed died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Number three, they visibly mark out the church from the world. That is, when you sit and watch the Lord's Supper, for example, you're seeing a snapshot of, as best we can know, the true church. And number four, they engage us in service to God in Christ according to the word. Which is why many Baptist churches, and I would recommend we do this here once we restore it, many Baptist churches would read the church covenant before they take the Lord's Supper. Just as a reminder of their service to God and their, their service to God as a church family. And so those are the things that the, that these, that these ordinances point out. Okay? That's why we don't baptize non-Christians, because it's a sign of those who we think are Christian. So for the rest of our time, we'll focus first on baptism. Secondly, we'll focus on the Lord's Supper. Any general questions about this topic so far before we go into each ordinance in particular? A thought, comment, or question on either of the ordinances. Anything I said that you want to ask about or just any thought? Come on. Give me one or two just to know you're still tracking with me. I've, I've heard often people ask... Um, Microphones come in. we got to serve all of our brothers and sisters with hearing here. So I've, I've heard it asked before, um, you know, when someone comes to faith, and they say, well, you know, I've, I've come to, to Christ, but I have, yet not, I have not yet been baptized. Will I go to heaven? So that's just a question for you. Great. That's actually the very first question we're going to tackle as we talk about baptism. <laughs> so, are you reading my... Is it in there? Okay. No. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, a, that's the first thing we're going to do. So, we'll hit that. Good. Anything else? Any other thoughts on baptism or the Lord's Supper in general? 
You're tracking okay? You're, you're okay. Well, let's move on then. Why does baptism matter? So here's the question, and it's exactly what Chris said. Let's say that I become a Christian, but I'm never baptized. I can still go to heaven, right? So what harm is done if I don't get baptized? Well, before I answer it, Brandon, you might need to uh, shop the mic around here. How would you guys answer it? So let's say you share the gospel with someone. They want, they believe in Christ. They repent from their sins, but they don't want to get baptized. They refuse to get baptized. How would you respond to them, brother Steve? Well, I'm just yawning. First, I don't want to know why. Okay. Some people have a fear of water, so you want to identify the reason why. Okay. Um, so it's not a fear of water. Okay, it's not a fear of water. Then, um, They're an Olympic swimmer. <laughs> it's an Olympic swimmer who just professed faith in Christ. Okay, the point is you want to find out what the reason they don't want to be baptized. Okay. Uh, and I, I think, I know of people who have been saved and not taught about baptism and have served the Lord. But when taught about baptism and the importance of it, if they do not want to or refuse to, it would, to me, be a sign that they really don't want to follow Christ. Uh, when we're saved, the Spirit comes to live within us, and we're given new desires. And so when we're taught what Christ wants us to do, we, by our new nature, want to do that. Okay. So you might want to, um, in a case like that, be sure that person really has been regenerated. Okay, good. So, so if thank you. So, if the person has been, if you've explained clearly, and the person understands the biblical teaching on baptism, yet still refuses, Steve is saying you might want to just check: Have you been born again? That's what regeneration means, right? Being born again. Have you been born again? Because if you're born again by the Spirit, you're going, you're going to want to, not perfectly, but progressively, you're going to want to obey God. So why wouldn't you be obeying God in this situation? Barbara. I have a question. Okay. I've heard people say, I was baptized by my husband. Okay, well, hold on. I was baptized by my brother who was not an ordained minister. Okay. Can you be baptized by anybody? Okay, so the question is, I've been baptized by my husband or someone who's not an ordained minister. Can you be baptized by anybody? That is my second question here. That's the second question here, so we'll hit that next. It is. Well, it's right here. (laughs) You can check my notes after this. This is actually the notes from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I didn't write these, so it's right here. Okay. Well, a few more thoughts. I agree with everything Steve said, first of all, on that one about you want to check, have they been born again? Do they understand what the Bible teaches? Um, I would also answer... If you're not willing to get baptized and Christ commands you to baptize other people, because now he's going to send you, go therefore and make disciples and do what? Baptize Baptize them. So how are you going to baptize other people when you yourself haven't been baptized yourself? So there's an act of, there's a, there's an issue of obedience there. You're disobeying Christ. If you, you can disobey Christ out of ignorance, like Steve said, if you haven't been taught, or you can be disobeying Christ knowingly. And, and so either way, it's disobedience. Not only that, when you don't get baptized, you're missing out on an opportunity to proclaim him publicly. When you don't get baptized, you missed out on the confirmation of a local church agreeing that your profession seems genuine. When you don't get baptized, you lose a visual reminder of your death to yourself and your life in Christ. 
And other people lose out on the reminder of their own salvation. You bless other Christians when you get baptized. And even non-Christians miss out if they visit the church when you get baptized. They miss out on a visual picture of the gospel when you choose not to get baptized. Okay? So that's the first one. Now let's go to Barbara's question. I'll state it the way it says it here in the notes. Now, presumably, an understanding of those benefits should inform how we do baptism as a church. How have you seen baptism practiced and dealt with in ways that subvert these purposes? So if the purpose is these ways of obeying, how has baptism been practiced wrongly among Christians? Um, Let's leave aside infant baptism for a second. Let's just talk about among believers' baptism. Um, Here's some ways that churches have done it wrong, and then we'll get to Barbara's question specifically. Some churches don't require baptism for church membership. That's wrong. Baptism is the expression, the first initial expression of faith in Christ. Um, Some say they're saying obedience is optional part of following Jesus. So you're not saved by works, and we all agree to that. You're not saved by works, but by faith. But if it's living faith, it will produce works. And if it doesn't, then that faith is dead, according to James chapter 2. But some say, well, I'm not saved by work, so I don't have to get baptized. Well, churches that are, are kind of shy to tell people to get baptized, they're not teaching the Bible boldly the way they ought to. Um, another thing here is that churches, um, sometimes they do baptism in mass, where they just baptize a bunch of people at the same time, and they're not really checking or, or thoroughly examining the people who are getting baptized. Um, Some people use baptism more of their own testimony of themselves rather than a testimony of God's work in their lives. That could be a mistake. Um, Sometimes baptism is not explained, and so the visual sign is not translated for the people who are witnessing it. And then here's the one that goes to Barbara's question specifically. Sometimes baptism is not done in connection with a church. And who's to say what the baptism means? The church is supposed to be discipling people in that. And so... I think in special special exceptions, there might be a chance or a reason to baptize outside of a local church. But all baptisms generally and biblically practiced regularly, unless it's extreme circumstances, missionary circumstances, I'm thinking particularly, you should get baptized by a local church. Which is why even when we take a member in for membership, we say what church they have been baptized by because we are, we are saying that it's in connection with a local church. Now, one more step, and then Jim, if you want to raise your hand at this point. Um, on the, what if it's an unordained minister? Now, I might open up a can of worms here, but I'll take the risk, and I think I could defend it biblically. I don't think you have to be an ordained minister to baptize. Um, I, think you, I think you should do it in connection to your church. My preference, actually, let's say, Barbara, you lead someone to Christ, you lead your neighbor to Christ, and it's time for her to get baptized, and she wants to join our church. I would prefer that the person who leads them to Christ baptize them in the water. Would you be in the pool if they wanted me to be, I wouldn't see any reason why it'd have to be. I don't make the water special by my, by my presence in there. So yeah, I, I, no, I'd, I'd prefer not to get wet, probably. But um, no, but but seriously though, I, I just think it should be. It's encouraging to other members of the church to witness as well, you know. And so I would be for the persons who lead them to Christ to be the ones baptizing them. Again, it's not something that thus says the Lord and I have to do it that way. But my, my biblical defense of that is go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Who's supposed to go? Disciples, disciples not just pastors. Who's supposed to make disciples? Just the pastors? No, everyone makes disciples. Who's supposed to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded? 
all of the members. That's what membership is, right? Taking responsibility for our discipleship to obey everything Christ commanded. So if we're supposed to do the going and the making disciples and the teaching, what about the baptizing? I just, they're all, to me, all four are for all disciples. But I'm happy to be disagreed with on that. Jim, did you want to say anything earlier? Here comes the microphone, if you do. Earlier you made it sound like you were, baptized, you were uh, affirming their, their conversion at, at the point of baptism mm-hmm. rather than having a, a meeting with them before to, to really uh, confirm it. Okay. Is that what you were doing? I mean... Yes. Well, yes, because the final bap- the actual baptism is the public profession of faith. It's the public profession, but well, because my are you well, going to take someone up there and you're unsure? No, I'm not. But 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 me taking them up there doesn't mean I'm sure until they actually do it. Here's a, here's a good example. I was sharing the gospel with a USC student, and this person professed faith in Christ. They wanted to follow Jesus, and then I said, "Great, praise God! You need to get baptized." As a public profession of your faith. Now, I thought, if you were asking me at that point, PJ, do you think this guy's a Christian? I would have said yes. I was discipling the guy for maybe about six months to eight months. Um, he was going to our church in L.A. Then when I got to the baptism issue, he said, whoa, I don't want to get baptized because my parents will get mad. This is a, this is a grad student in, at, in college. And said, I don't want to get baptized. My parents will get upset. And so I read to him Matthew 10. And I just said, hey, you know, if you love father or mother more than me, or son or daughter more than me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your parents, but you've got to love Jesus even more than your parents. And if you can't get baptized, then Jesus is saying that you're not worthy to be a disciple. You're not really trusting him. So, in other words, if I would have interviewed him beforehand and he doesn't want to cross that line, that would make me pull back and say, well, I don't want to, as an evangelist, I don't want to give you a false assumption that you're saved when you're refusing to obey God because you're clearly picking your parents over Jesus. Yeah, but you're doing that. You're doing it before. Right. What, what should be done? Sure. Anyway. Right, and it was before. So, so my, so my private affirmation. But at the same time, brother, my private affirmation almost means nothing. I mean, I am a pastor, so I'm going to recommend to the church. But the church is going to make that final decision, and then the church is the one. We as a church are baptizing the person, and that's all public. So yes, I could privately affirm them, but my private affirmation. I would, I would do that as a good leader. As a good pastor, I want the church to know that I'm confident that we should baptize Bill, so to speak, right? But, but at this, at the end of the day, until Bill actually gets baptized, that my confidence is with an asterisk next to it until he actually follows through. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I know a man. Okay. Made a, made a public profession. However, he didn't want to be baptized and he waited several months. He eventually did. Right. Well, I would say until he eventually does, that's where I would draw the line. And I would encourage him. Like this person who refused because of the parents, I was still willing to meet with the person to read the Bible and keep discipling him. But after a while, he was starting to just be like, you know, I don't want to meet anymore. And he just didn't want. But yeah, I mean, if someone isn't ready for it, like, like Steve was saying, you keep teaching them. Right. We're, we're not saying you have to do it now or never on my clock. Or on the disciples' clock, it's it's on God's timing. We just keep faithfully teaching the word, and then and then wait for the Spirit to move them to obedience. Okay, so I think your friend is a good example of okay, he's not ready yet. You keep teaching, hoping they keep attending church. 
keep hearing the word and seeing a few more people get baptized. And then they, they start to say, you know what? I need to obey the Lord too. And that would be a, a, an expression, an outward expression of their inward faith. And that's where we want to affirm that. Okay. Barbara, you wanted to ask something? Here comes the mic. And then one over here with my dad. Understand the gospel? Sure. And I thought that's what Jim meant. Yes. Questioned them before. You just don't. Somebody doesn't walk in and say, "I'd like to be baptized." Yes. Yes, I would. And then after that, with my affirmation in that conversation, I'm holding an asterisk personally until they actually follow through. Okay. Okay. But yes, I would totally examine before, and I have, and that's that's kind of what we do with the with the considering membership process. My dad, and then Steve, and then we're going to move on just for the sake of time. Can you do more than one baptism in your lifetime? Oh, as as the recipient of baptism. The the biblical answer, Al might want to disagree with me here, but no, you can't get baptized more than once. You can get wet more than once, <laughs> but you you can't really get biblically baptized more than once. Once you believe in Christ and you get baptized, that is your real baptism. Now, if you're saying, well, I wasn't sure if I was a Christian, so I, I want to get baptized again. I would say, well, you're not getting baptized again. Maybe you're getting baptized for the first time and you just got wet the first time. Or, or maybe the second one is to make sure, but you were really a Christian then. And so that one's your real baptism. I don't care to know which one the exact one was. I just want to know you're baptized. Okay. So yeah, you can only biblically be baptized once. You can be wet many times. And um, sometimes people do that. In our church here, they used to require a Southern Baptist immersion um, to, to join this church, which I would say is not biblical in the sense that they, if they've been baptized, immersed as a believer, that's their baptism. You're just wetting them. Um, but that's, that's what I think the Bible teaches. Give them a bath, a good Southern Baptist bath before they join. Well, since you said that about the Southern Baptist baptism, I'm thankful to know that I've wondered for a long time what kind of baptism we would accept. And we've seen recently uh, baptism, people coming from membership as this morning that were not baptized in Baptist church. I'm thankful for that, that we can um, uh, take baptism by immersion from other churches. Right now, that having been said, um, I want to say that I, I'm also in agreement with what PJ said about who can baptize, uh, and for the same reason uh, that um, the Great Commission says, tells the disciples to go as disciples and make disciples and baptize these new disciples. But we also have an example of that in the book of Acts when... Um, Philip. Paul, when he was in Nova Saul, was saved, and, and um, God went to Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Let me read that verse. Uh, and it says, uh, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, and then it goes on, and he tells him to go to where uh, Saul is and to um, lay his hands on him to receive his sight and then to baptize him. So we have, actually have an example of a man who is identified only as a disciple, not a deacon, not a pastor, only as a disciple. Yeah. And we establish our doctrines on textual evidence and examples from the scriptures. Okay, great. Well, because we're having such a great discussion, I'm going to skip a whole section here. Let me see if, I have, if you have it in your notes. 
I'm going to skip for now the argument for infant baptism and then a response to it. Okay, and that's right here at the top of this inside page, not because it's not important, but literally for the sake of time. And we do want to leave time for prayer. I'm just going to skip out on this for now. All that. But I do want to say this. And this is just generally true. Whenever you're disagreeing with anyone, you always want to represent their position at their best. So there are brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Bible and love the Lord Jesus far more than I ever will. And I think that they could still love Jesus more and know more of the Bible more and still be wrong on this issue or vice versa with me being wrong. But the, the point is, we, with our Christian brothers, we want to dis- disagree respectfully. They're not idiots because they baptize babies. I think they're mistaken. They think we're mistaken and we could respect each other on that. The main thing is we're, we are preaching the gospel, but there are reasons why we are a Baptist church and would not baptize infants here or let members join this church who have a conviction for infant baptism. They can't, and that's not their argument. They're not saying that the baby does repent. The short argument for them is this. Okay, I'll say it briefly. I'm not going to give a response to it because it is going to be a long discussion. But here, they say, in the Old Testament, who was circumcised? Was it just the adults? Even the children, right? The circumcision was the covenant sign of the Old Covenant community. We are a new covenant community. What's the initial sign of the new covenant community? Baptism. The Lord's Supper is the continual sign, but the initial beginning sign is baptism. So you had circumcision, and then you take the Passover regularly, yearly. Here we do baptism, and then you take the Lord's Supper regularly. So they would say, well, you circumcise babies on the eighth day. Why would you not baptize babies? There's a parallel there in the Bible And so from old covenant community to new covenant community, it's a continuation of the covenants. That's their argument. Brief response would be the baptism of the New Testament. Its correspondence is not with physical circumcision in the Old Testament, but spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart. And the proof text for that is Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. But... Again, that, that's a longer discussion. I'm happy to do that again later. But because we're having a great discussion, we need to move on to the Lord's Supper. Oh, wait. One more thing about baptism before we move on. You're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Notice it's name, not names. So there's one God, yet it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. There's a Trinitarian, you know, there's a Trinitarian hint even in the baptismal formula. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you're baptized in the name of the Father, you get a new identity. Right? Just like if you get adopted into a family, you take on the last name of that family. If you're baptized into the name of the Father, you become children of God. And so we become, as a church, the family of God. When you're baptized in the name of the Son, you are now immersed into the Lord Jesus Christ. If He's the Lord, we are His servants or slaves. So we are now the slaves of Christ. We're the body of Christ. He's the head and we're the body. And if we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit... He is the, he's the spirit who lives in the sanctuary or the temple, and we are the temple. And so when you become a Christian, you're baptized, you now become, when you're baptized in the name of the Father, you're the family of God, you're baptized in the name of the Son, you're now a slave of Christ and the body of Christ, and you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a new identity, and that's what we're supposed to be living out in our church family, day in and day out, Sunday in and Sunday out. Okay? That's on baptism. 
Now, let's go to the last part here. What is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? Yeah, so let's start with the question, what is it? If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, turn there in your Bible. Is it there in your notes? 1 Corinthians 11? No? Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. It is there? Bethany, you're saying yes? Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28 says this. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharisteo, Eucharist, gave him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he... Comes. There's that future aspect. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what we see here in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the Lord's Supper has meaning that is grounded in the past, present, and future. We're doing this in remembrance of who? In the past. Remembrance of? Christ. And what did Christ do? His body was what for us? broken for us on the cross and his blood was spilled for us on the cross, right? And so you have the past cross work of Christ. And so he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now there's great debate about what that meant, right? This is my body. Roman Catholics think that when the priest raises it and the bell is rung and he says in Latin, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. Then all of a sudden, miraculously, we would say as Baptists, magically, right? The body turns into the actual body of Jesus. The bread turns into the actual body of Jesus. They call that the doctrine of transubstantiation, where Jesus is re-sacrificed every time you take communion, which is every week for them. It becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus in our mouths. Is what they was, that's what they think it means. But that's not what remembrance means. Luther taught that there was a real presence of Jesus in the supper, the body of Jesus was in, around, and under the bread. In contrast to that, the Reformed tradition teaches that what we partake of is merely bread and wine. It's a memorial. It symbolizes the body of Christ. But Christ is really present. Yet His presence is a spiritual presence and not physical. Thus, we talk about feeding on Jesus in your heart by faith when we take the Lord's Supper. So, does this belief that it's a mere memorial of Christ's death, as Baptists have generally believed, does that make it unimportant? No, this is very important. Now, I'm talking about the spiritual presence of Christ. This is nice that we're doing this tonight. I didn't mean for this to happen, but remember what we talked about this morning? Paul says, I pray that you might be strengthened with power in the inner man so that through the Spirit, so that Christ would dwell in your heart. That's presence. The presence of Christ would dwell in your heart through what? Through faith. That's what it said in the text. You experience the presence of Christ through faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God in the King James Version. A better translation is the word of Christ, actually, in the text. But the word of Christ, when you hear the gospel. And so when you hear the gospel and you believe it, you're trusting in Christ and you experience the presence of Christ. Spiritually, not physically. And so, when what does the bread represent? The gospel, right? Body broken. What does the blood represent? New covenant. It's the gospel. And so when you take the bread and drink the cup and you remember the gospel and you're believing in the gospel afresh 
as it is physically proclaimed to you, Christ is present as you exercise faith. Not physically, like the Roman Catholics teach, not physically like the Lutherans teach, but spiritually, like Ephesians 3 teaches, as you exercise faith. Okay? So it's, it is memorial, but it's, it's hardly a mere memorial, as if it's just not important because it's memorial. As you remember Christ, you're exercising faith. That's what the Passover was, right? Every year they would take the Passover to remember the Passover, but you're exercising faith. So that's the past. It remembers the, the cross work of Christ. What about in the present? It says that we're to examine ourselves, right? We're to examine ourselves and take of the cup worthily. In verse 29, it says that if we eat and drink without discerning the body, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Now, discerning the body is more than just recognizing that the bread means the body of Christ. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, we are to build up the body of Christ. Who's the body of Christ? The church. And you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, they were not building up the body during the Lord's Supper. They were eating before everyone got there. And the poor people were not getting their share. And the, the people who were there ahead of time were drinking all the wine and actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're using the wine of the Lord's Supper to get drunk before the other members came to take it with them. And so in that, Paul is saying, you're drinking of this in an unworthy manner. You are not discerning the nature of the body of Christ. You're not loving one another. And so you are to examine yourself and, and, and repent from your sins, and then go discern what the body of Christ represents as you take the Lord's Supper. That's the present. So you remember the past, you think about the present body of Christ here, and then the future, Christ is coming again to drink the cup with us. And so we look forward to the, to the second coming of Jesus. Now, what does the Lord's Supper do? I think that's the back. Now, you have a, a bunch of bullets there? Do you, okay, so you see it here. What does the Lord's Supper actually accomplish? And then, not in your notes, but make sure I answer this before we close. Who can take the Lord's Supper? Okay, I'll stop with that one, and then any questions you have. Okay, so, what does the Lord's Supper actually do? And by the way, just so you know, next year, starting in January, we're taking the Lord's Supper every month. I would argue from the Bible that the church took the Lord's Supper every week. But, we're going to be taking it every month. In January, we'll take it in the morning. February, we're going to take it Sunday evening. First Sunday evening. March, first Sunday morning, April, first Sunday evening, and so forth. For 2016, we will be taking the Lord's Supper. So what does it do, though? Here's what it does. I'll just go through these bullets here. It is a regular opportunity for self-examination. Paul tells us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And when you take the Lord's Supper, it's a great time for self-examination. Number two, it's a regular opportunity to check our relationships in the church. It's wonderful to see husbands and wives, friends, slip out just before the Lord's Supper to reconcile some difference in their relationship. Did my mic go out? My mic went out? I heard it go out. Is it? Hello? Hello? It's on? It just went low. Okay. So, um, you know, before you take the Lord's Supper, Matthew 5 says, if your brother has an offense against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave your sacrifice at the altar. I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice, but make it your priority number zero. Before you do priority number one, which is worship God, go make right with your brother or sister first. Then come back and worship the Lord. Matthew chapter five. And so before you take the Lord's Supper, what it should be doing in this church is cleansing our relationships. Any icy, frosty, 
ill will relationships, we should not be taking the Lord's Supper under those circumstances. If there is any offense between two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister, you are to make right with them and reconcile with them before you come to this holy Lord's Supper. That's the point of it. If you don't, you're not recognizing the body of Christ. And that's part of the point. You can see that when a church does this regularly and does it correctly, it will build health in a church because you're constantly examining and and fixing broken relationships before it gets worse. Uh, Next bullet here, it's a powerful reminder of our forgiveness. We are seeing something that represents what Jesus did for us. I've had many people, when we did it in L.A., we would do it every week, and sometimes members would come and say, PJ, can I take the Lord's Supper this week? I was struggling with this. And I would just use that opportunity to blast them. No, I wouldn't blast them. I'd use that opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Brother, have you repented from that? Do you trust that Jesus died for that sin? Do you want to do away with that sin? Well, take the Lord's Supper with us. This is for sinners who are repentant. You don't have to be super spiritual. You just need to admit your weakness and say, God, get this away from me. I don't want to sin anymore. Come to the Lord's Supper. It's for repentant sinners. So it actually becomes a chance to preach the gospel to people individually when they're saying, I'm not worthy to take the Lord's Supper. And they almost get legalistic about how worthy they have to be before they take the Lord's Supper. And what's the best antidote for legalism? The gospel. Just preach it right to them. Next, it's a reminder of the passing nature of the physical to the eternal and spiritual nature. We're remembering the presence of Christ. Next, it's a picture of heaven. When you look around at everyone taking this communion, just think, in heaven or on the new earth, we will be feasting with all of God's people forever and ever and ever. Next, it's a warning of judgment for those who don't partake. If people have been excommunicated, we tell them not to take the Lord's Supper. If they're not Christians, we tell them not to take the Lord's Supper. If they don't want to get baptized, I'm answering the question of who can take it. If they don't want to get baptized, I tell them not to take the Lord's Supper. If they don't want to join a local church and be committed to a local church, I tell them not to take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it is a symbol, it is an, it's, an, it's a warning to people. If you don't trust in Jesus, you don't have a part in this. If you don't want to get baptized, do you really trust in the Lord Jesus? If you don't want to join a local church and be committed actually and practically to a local church, why are you saying you're following Jesus? If you're not, then you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. And so it's a, it's a powerful warning to those who would take it but can't or are, or are at least warned against it. It's also a reminder of our unity as a congregation. Unity isn't important merely because it makes the life of the church more enjoyable. Unity is important because Christ is one. And when we have unity as the body, we represent Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper strengthens unity when it's practiced well. Lastly, here is the last bullet. There has to be some significance to the Lord's Supper that we just don't understand. God's mind is bigger than ours. And when we get to heaven, we'll see how important the ordinances actually were. And we just need to take it seriously because Jesus took it seriously. And if we can't see the full significance, we don't think the fault is with the Lord's Supper. The fault is with who? With us. So we just take it in faith and say, God, increase my biblical understanding of what you teach about what this means for my life, for those I disciple, for our church family, for those we're evangelizing. So next time you take the Lord's Supper, which is next week, why don't you run through some of these bullets and just remind yourself of how important it is that we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. Okay, I'm done. Questions, comments, or thoughts from anyone except Barbara. Barbara. Just kidding. Okay, Barbara, question. 
Okay. Okay. Okay, so Bar- Barbara is saying there's at least one translation that does not say the word broken. What does broken mean in terms of the body of Christ? I think it just means that he his death on the cross. Yeah. His his death, his beating, I mean his actual substitutionary death for our sins. Okay? Other questions, comments, or thoughts? We'll limit this to two or three minutes before we close in prayer. The Lord's Supper. Brother Steve, over here. I'm stretching again. Stretching again. Okay, so, sometimes you see people not take the Lord's Supper in church for years. I was in church well, 10 years ago, and, and there were a couple people that for several years would not take the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and I don't know why, but I mean... To me, I think it's wrong for someone not to take the Lord's Supper simply because they feel unworthy. Or what are your comments about that? I agree with you. It's not if if they feel unworthy, that's where it becomes a gospel issue. Are they believing the gospel? And you want to encourage that person. I mean, I would. So when you're taking the Lord's Supper regularly, let's say every week, every other week, once a month, you can you can start to observe patterns of people who aren't taking the Lord's Supper. And I would say for any member of our church, if you see another member not taking it, it's not your license to be nosy. It's your license to be loving. Find if God had you got to ask these questions when you're just living life together in the church. Why did God have me notice that they weren't taking it? You think that was an accident that God had you notice? Is anything an accident? No, right? And so if, if God had you notice that they didn't take the Lord's Supper, I would take that as some sort of cue that God wants you to be a blessing to them. Now you've got to figure that out. Does that mean you have a conversation with them? Does that mean you pray for them? Does that mean you just check in on how they're doing in general and not ask about the Lord's Supper in particular? You figure it out, okay, I noticed. What does God want me to do to be a blessing to my brother or sister in Christ? That's sharing life as a church family. So, And then I would try to encourage them. It's not healthy. And if I, as a pastor, found out one of our members wasn't taking the Lord's Supper regularly, I would lovingly try to encourage them. I'd want to find out what's going on. And then I'd like to I'd like to find out if there's some way I can gospelize the brother or sister to encourage them to take the Lord's Supper, or we might actually stumble upon a really big issue that they they're right to not take it, and we got to actually deal with that sin issue. You know, well I'm cheating on my wife. I've been cheating on my wife for six months. Oh well, that's that's a good reason not to take it. Let's let's figure that out. Let's let's apply the gospel to your marriage now, brother. You know, and so so goes the life of a church. Life of a church is messy. But we're messy people. We're sinners. You know, we're saints and we're sinners. And so this is the place for messy people to, 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 to receive and drink grace.